were kind of dilated and his ears were kind of flattened. And I immediately knew he had some weird thing in his mind going on. I looked at him and said, no. And he jumped at me and tried to bite me in the throat. And I grabbed onto his throat to keep his mouth away from my neck. And he was fully clawed. So he dug his claws in and into me. Um, and was just he was winning the the match. He was pulling his own self. I'm not, I'm not surprised. Yeah. <laughs> and then so mountain lions and a lot of big cats they do this next thing if they're if they can't bite you. He started to try to pull his back feet up and try to rake gut me. Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I am your host Byron Pace, and this is a Modern Huntsman production. This is the second show of 2023, in episode 221. We have some amazing episodes uh, due to release in the coming weeks, including an extension to the Swarovski Optic Living with Nature series, which I always get lots of comments about, uh, which is which is awesome. So we're extending that by another three episodes. Uh, if you want to go back and listen ahead of time before we get into the next uh, part of the series, then go back to um, the second half of last year, look for Living with Nature, and you will find half a dozen episodes We've tweaked the questions a little, um, but uh, the ethos is still the same. People in the great outdoors and how they get um, joy in their lives from nature. The first two guests have been confirmed. Uh, first up will be Gloria Goni. Uh, she's an amazingly talented photographer from Montana um, and seems to spend more time fishing, hunting, and adventuring than uh, pretty much anybody I know. <laughs> she also contributed to an article with Amanda Monti as a photographer in volume 10 of Modern Huntsman. Um, and Jim Murray has also been confirmed for the series. Jim uh, is a friend who is also an actor. You probably know him better as playing Prince Andrew in The Crown. He's an avid fisherman and an awesome human being, and I can't wait to have him on the show as well. All of that is to come, but on this show, I sat down with Casey Anderson, or Grizzly Guy, as he is known on his social platforms. He is a naturalist and filmmaker, creating shows as a producer and host for National Geographic, the BBC, and Discovery Channel, to name just a handful. He runs a wildlife sanctuary in Montana and offers an intimate insight into captive wildlife, the good and the bad. From an analysis of anthropomorphizing animals to the death of the famous P-22 mountain lion and nearly being killed by a cougar himself, it really is a captivating discussion with a man who has lived an amazing life. But before we get into that, don't forget to check out Volume 10 of Modern Huntsman. That is the latest volume that was released right at the end of last year. It has the front cover, which looks is a view from inside the ribcage of a musk ox while a wolf is eating it, taken by the brilliantly talented Ronan Donovan, who also has an article in there about wolves uh, with Rob Green, who wrote a story about grizzly bears in a previous volume. Just so many incredible people involved in the production of those. So if you, if you're, if you're, if you happen to be a new listener and you've no idea what I'm talking about, there is a host of um, old episodes that has Tyler Sharp um, in them. He's the editor in chief of the volume, um, and we very regularly interview people who have written stories within the book. But head over to modernhuntsman.com, and you can read all about the publication. A big shout out to the Patreon supporters for this week who in the top tier include Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of RD Contracting, James Marchington, the guys at South Ash Stalkings, Dick Ekstroma, and Mark Zabrowski. Thank you so much for your support. And to everybody who supports in every tier of the podcast, you help make these shows possible. If you would like to support these shows, head over to patreon.com forward slash Byron Pace. And lastly, uh, I'm extremely excited this week. I feel like a massive weight has been lifted off my shoulders because I finished the edit for my feature documentary, Paid in Blood. Um, I'm As I'm recording this, I'm uploading the file to Dropbox um, to put in front of the people who are doing the sound scoring and who are going to be doing um, the coloring and all of the sound design. So that is the next phase, which is going to take probably the next two months. Uh, and then uh, we'll be trying to work out a rollout plan for a release. But I'm very excited to bring that to everybody. We are still trying to raise funds to pay for the last piece of production, all those things that I've just listed out. Uh, I needed to raise $30,000 and we're in the region of about 17 right now. So a little way to go. 
Uh, if you would like to read more about the project, head over to byronpace.com and then uh, in the menu you will find films and in films you will find Paid in Blood. Uh, there's a whole page and a trailer on there you can go and read and you can very easily donate to the post-production process with a button at the bottom. Or if you want to reach out to me and speak specifically about what we can do, um, there is a contact form on the website and I'll be happy to chat to you. Uh, Casey, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I, uh, I'm so pleased to have you on. Just before I hit record there, you were saying that you'd done some conversions for me. Uh, conversions of temperature, that is, because you are speaking to me. I'm assuming you're in Montana, right? Where, where are you I, from? Yeah, I'm right at now? home at Montana. Yeah. yeah so, so this morning- uh, How cold yeah, is it? Yeah, when I woke up this morning, um, I, I was surprised because we had this Arctic air mass kind of dip down north from the north. It's negative 30 Celsius right now, ambient temperature with the wind chill of minus 45. So it's it's cold. The only time I've been in temperatures as low as that was I was in Svalbard a few years ago, uh, and it was I don't actually know what the wind chill was, but the the temperature was was minus twenty five. Um, but it didn't feel like I'd felt colder because it was so dry. Uh, but yeah, that is that is cold. You you can't take your gloves off for very long at minus twenty five. No, you can't. No, it's I like to go out into it, and there's something about just going out and feeling the extremes of what the planet can give to us. But yeah, I, I'm with you on that though. I've been colder too. You know, it's one of those things. I think it's that wet cold and you go, there's places in the Midwest yeah. of the United States, like around the Great Lakes region. And it, it's not quite as cold, but that, that sticky humidity that's still in the air, that yep. just is like the factor that takes it to the next level. Yeah, that's Scotland. It's like only my, minus, it's been minus five. It's actually warmed up. It's crazy. It's gone from minus five centigrade to 10 degrees plus in the space of 48 hours. But that min that wet minus five is bitter. Torture. It's torture. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like you through your bones. Now we we narrowly missed meeting up in person where I it can't have been this year. It must have been last year. Uh, when I was passing through Bozeman, I think we were going to be in the same place. You were away somewhere like for one day and then we couldn't quite hook it up. But uh, I'm pleased to be speaking to you, um, even if it is remotely and not in person, which would have obviously been better. Yeah, likewise. Well, we'll you know, we'll cross paths again, I'm sure. I have a chance to, to do it in the future. Let's hope so. Oh, uh, I'm sure. I'm sure we will. I, I think we're probably only one or two people removed from like a friend or a friend or whatever. And it was funny because um, it had been you'd been on my list of like I need to reconnect after bouncing emails back and forth and actually make this podcast happen. And I walked. I was at my parents' house visiting, um, who don't live all that far from me. And I was in the kitchen, and my dad shouts through. He says, "Hey, Byron, come through. There's a." A program on the TV about grizzly bears in Montana, and um, so I walked through there, and it was your face on screen, and you were talking, and I said, uh, I "I'm podcasting with him pretty soon." I said, "We've been trying to hook this up for a while." He says, "You got to be joking." I says, "Yeah." So as soon as I, I I saw that, I was like, "Shit, I need to just find the e last email I sent to you, and like let's make this happen." Great. No, I'm glad you did. I mean, yeah, I'm a fan of the podcast, and so you know, I mean, yeah, I'm. Just stoked to be on it yeah i think that was a smith smithsonian um so I, I don't know what the series was but i think it was a smithsonian channel that he was watching. yeah i think that's uh um, was a, a program that just came out last year called uh growing up grizzly it's about kind of this explorer exploration into um captive bears and you know whether you should rescue them or not if they're orphaned in the wild or let nature take its course kind of a yeah an interesting uh, program. Yeah. It's something I wanted to kind of tackle and kind of, kind of spell out to the audience, like kind of some of the decisions that we have to make sometimes and mm -hmm. how complicated they are and difficult. And there really are, is no right answer, you know? So I just kind of wanted to do, do a film that kind of showed all those nuances and let, let the, let the audience kind of figure out how they feel about it. Was that a was that a film that you your company produced? Yeah, we did Vision Hawk uh, Films, my company. Yeah, we decided. Yeah, it was, just, it was something it was something I talk about a lot. You know, it was just one of those things. And yeah, and it's something that I'm you know always evolving with. I guess a little bit. Like I changed my mind about things quite a bit over the last twenty years, uh, and continue to change my mind. And I just yeah, I just thought it'd be an interesting film to make. You know, let's just, let's kind of. It's the elephant in the room a lot of the times when people come up to me and know that I have a grizzly bear sanctuary and, you know, and, yeah. uh, you know, and, and the, the irony is, is I am pretty anti-captive wildlife. Um, 
And I want mm-hmm. nature to take its course and animals to have their chance in the wild. But it's not always a perfect scenario like that. And so, yeah, I just want to kind of talk, tackle that that subject. And that's what I did in that yeah. film. I, w- I want to get into that more. I, I'm just thinking now in the last week, um, this came up and maybe a lot of people would have been aware about this discussion when um, they caught P-22, the famous mountain lion in, in um, California. And that was a, a discussion. I think they actually end up, ended up having to put him down, didn't they? But there was a discussion about putting him in a sanctuary for a while. Yeah. No, interesting you ask you say that. You know, mountain lions don't tell the grizzly bears, but they're probably my favorite animal. And I've been following the, the <laughs> P-22 story for a long time. And yeah, no, it, when they captured him, obviously he'd been doing some some strange behavior. Um, he had attacked. Yeah. What a horrible state. He yeah. Was he was just in a bad way. But yeah. So what's, you know, what's the right answer there? It's like, you got this cat that's not doing well. It's 13 years old, you know, at the end of his life, you know, he's obviously desperate and making some desperate decisions. Now, do you euthanize him or do you put him in, in the sanctuary? And honestly, I was, you know, in, in my little peer group and people are asking, I was advocating for the, him being euthanized. I, I just can't imagine an animal yeah. that has lived in the wild for 13 years being put into a sanctuary of any sort. Uh, I just think it would have been torture for him. And I, yeah, I think they made the right decision. He had had some massive health issues, had been hit by a car and injured. Um, it was the right thing. It was the humane thing to do. And um, yeah, you know, that, that cat, he, he uh, in his 13 years, had done so much for mountain lions, for people, for so yeah, connectivity issues. I think that he made the world a better place. Uh, it was not a. It was a, a life that uh, made a huge difference, for sure. And you know, I I was spending a bit of time uh, back and forth to LA for a while, and that was the first time that I had come across P twenty two. And I went to the two of them actually to P twenty two Day, which was essentially to raise funds for the big crossover that has now been fully funded and i'm not sure if they've actually broken ground on it they may or may not but it's going to be the largest flyover in the world um and i had always been hesitant about the idea of creating too much of a character around an individual animal when so much of conservation around the world uh, is you have to take sometimes very hard decisions a bit like the one that we've just talked about for the the betterment of the species rather than the individual because that's landscape scale conservation but it's difficult and it's it's emotional and it's it's a real challenge particularly when you personify an individual character an animal like that and i'd never been a big fan of it being done and then i saw how enthused people were and how much people cared because P22 had become a character, that it made me shift my opinion. Whereas it's not necessarily the way to go all the time, but I could see the massive benefit in it. Yeah, I'm with you on that exactly. I think that I've struggled with that same thing, but I've seen the power of that of those characters coming to life and people connecting to them in a deeper level that they just don't seem to connect at, at that landscape level, like you said. Um, and I think that it's powerful. I think you, we just have to, as storytellers, be careful with how we do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and I think that, but most you know, people are generally pretty smart, and they can they can figure yeah. it out. But just, as long as you're careful and honest about it, I think that uh, it's a really great way to connect, particularly to the people that don't already care. You know, that's that recruitment that recruitment yeah. level thing that you're trying to do all the time as as a filmmaker, especially in the conservation spaces. You know, how do we stop preaching to the choir and start, you know, start talking to people who haven't heard the stories, who haven't uh, connected? And I think that P twenty two had that uh, that ability and and did that and uh, brought a lot of people to the scene that would have never even thought about it twice. Yeah, absolutely. But before we get too deep into that, because we need uh, th- this spans to your the the bear sanctuary that you have, and then the f- famous bear that people might know. Uh, that you had for for a while, and then your your TV work. But where did it where did it start for you? What does young Casey look like, and what were you doing? Young Casey looks just like old Casey, <laughs> <laughs> just with yeah, gray, gray beard. beard and a lot more. Which which, which which I'm getting as well now. I noticed in the mirror. The other day. <laughs> yeah, and every day more and more for me for sure. Yeah, I mean a lot has not changed truly uh, in spirit for sure. You know, I grew up in Montana, was born and raised here. 
Um, and I was that as soon as I could walk, you know, I hear stories from my mom and dad that, you know, I was always curious and exploring the backyard and we lived on the edge of town near the, near the mountains. So I was always wandering out into, into the wild you know, as soon as I could. And to the point where I was, they were, they were always trying to keep a leash on me, but you know, I was always interested <laughs> in these creatures um, specifically that shared the space with me, you know, and I can remember one of the first things was this, this muskrat that lived in this irrigation ditch that ran through my yard. And, and, um, you know, just, I had learned at a young age that if I could be patient and watch and I could move slightly closer and I could, you know, this, this creature, this neighbor would start to reveal itself more. And, uh, that became a bit of probably an obsession at that point, even young. I mean, this is like, I'm talking five years old. Um, and then I just having, a, you know, for a lack of a better term, that constant resource of different creatures that would just be able to uh, satiate that curiosity, right? And so it was a oh, what a place to grow up with that kind of fascination and all of that on your doorstep. Yeah, and it's just it is, and I think in retrospect, now that I'm a, I'm a father, I've got three kids, young kids. I think one of the greatest things that was the fertilizer to who I am today was my parents never said no. Um, they let me just do what I wanted to do. And, and as that passion grew bigger, you know, even as I got into high school and to, and, and considering going into university, um, you know, I, they never said, you know, they tried, they didn't try to turn me another direction. You know, I wanted to work, I wanted mm-hmm. to work with animals since I was little and, uh, they just always supported it and never said, Oh no, you should be an attorney or a, a doctor or something. You know, they just said, yeah, this, yeah, do, what do you, something sensible. Yeah, do something that may actually makes money. Um, yeah. And so <laughs> it's, uh, who wants to do that? Yeah, no, but you know, in <laughs> retrospect, think, and I just, I thank them every day for that because, you know, yes, yeah. I've lived a wonderful life. I've been a doing, I do on a professional level for almost, yeah, this is coming on 30 years and, um, it's not always been easy. And certainly the bank account hasn't always been full, but my heart has. And I think that that's... Yeah, well, there's a lot to be said in that. Absolutely. There's a lot to be said in that because um, this has come up on on this show a few times, but, um, you know, there's a lot of people who live what is sadly a very empty life because they spend most of their lives working, doing something they don't want to do. So the only bit of their life they can fill with the, the pure happiness and excitement, the things that make us tick, are outside of the working hours, which is, you know, it's not that much of our lives yeah. if you really think about it. It's, it. It is sad. I hate to think about it. Well, I, I don't because I, I like you most of the time, apart from when I'm doing my tax return, um, which, which is normally minimal anyway <laughs> <laughs> because of the kind of work we do. Um, I'm doing things that I love doing. So I'm uh, very fortunate that that is also the case. Yeah, it is, it is awesome. Yeah, and, you know, and I'm, it's it's funny because I you know obviously I've answered that question a lot and I it's funny to sit back and just kind of retrospect and think hey you know what there's so many choices and so many paths and turns in the trail that I've kind of taken and never did and uh, you know here I am talking to you and I look back on all the turns and choices that I made and I don't regret any of them um, and it's uh, it's been a good life. Yeah, I I, I try and live by the idea that. Um... The only things, and not that I have many, but the only things that I've regretted are things that I haven't done, things that I kind of turned down that shouldn't have, but I've never regretted the the positive decisions that I've made. Because you just never know. And try, I mean, try, try and tell young Casey what the roadmap is of the life that led you to where you are now. It would be impossible. It would be, yeah. But clearly, you've just been guided by passion. Yeah. It seems like to me. I got to ask you, what's the number one thing that you wish that you would have done? Oh, I don't know if we have enough time for that. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's really hard. Um, I was actually just talking about this with a friend of mine who's actually also been on this podcast a bunch of times talking about sharks, Sarah Roberts. Uh, and we were talking about how, um, you all often think as you're growing up that, oh, you know, I'm, t- I'm too old to make that change now. And then life goes on 
and five or 10 years passes and you look back and you're like, I could have easily done that. And I, I do remember a bit of a crossroad and a decision for me to, me thinking, I can't do this, I'm too far down the road, was in my early 20s, and I already finished my degree in economics of all things. And I was spending a lot of time in Africa with amazing people, tranquilizing and darting elephants and uh, 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 collaring elephants and dehorning rhinos and doing all the cool things that young 20-year-old Byron wanted to be doing. Nothing related to my degree whatsoever. And I was seeing a lot of these wildlife vets jumping in and out of helicopters, just being badass and living the life that I was kind of hankering for. And I was thinking, I should have been a vet. And at that time, I thought, well, it's, this is impossible. I'd have to go back and study for five or six years. But in hindsight, if I look back on that, I was like 22. I would have been done by the time I was 28 and doing the thing. So I think, yeah, I don't know if that's so much of a regret because I wouldn't be doing, I wouldn't have done maybe a lot of the amazing things that I've done now. And I love storytelling and, and doing that through film and writing and photography. And I guess I would probably wouldn't be doing that if I was a vet. But that was definitely a, a decision point that I had to say, no, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, I, I get it, man. I, I can remember times just being around vets like that and think, you know, they are the the wildlife cowboys, so to speak, right? And they're just like, they, yeah. they are always doing <laughs> like the coolest that. things. I agree. I, yeah. I, well, some of them are. like, And, and I think this was the thing that I, I hadn't really thought about when I was like 16, making the decisions about what are you going to study at university, is that my experience of vets to that point were like, you know, putting down a hamster <laughs> or checking up on your dog. It wasn't um, catching mountain lions and darting elephants. And if I'd seen that at a younger age, I might have, there might have been a different path there, possibly. Yeah. No. But here you are. You can't, like I said. You, you, yeah. No, yeah. no, no. Don't, don't regret it at all. And now I'm sitting here talking to you. <laughs> so. <laughs> Where so what was what was your route through university then? So what was your you were obviously very much you know wildlife and and being immersed in it has been there since you were a child. But what route did you take to get through that sort of formative educational years? Yeah, it, not a non traditional one, and one I don't like to tell the kids too often. But um, so I went to university to study wildlife biology, uh, and then the first year uh, that first summer. I I was going to school in Bozeman at Montana State University. And so I was, you know, a stone's throw away from Yellowstone National Park. For, so in the summer months, I was going down to Yellowstone and, you know, doing what I was good at, tracking bears and watching, you know, looking for wildlife. And met a producer from Los Angeles who was um, just starting this big series. Uh, it was called Safari. It, it used to be on some obscure us channel for years but um you know he was an la guy didn't have a whole lot of wildlife experience i was a montana kid who had a ton of wildlife experience uh and i guess you know we became friends uh and then you know he's he was always you know it started off he was asking me like hey where do you think the you know the grizzly bears are today or have you seen anything interesting if you know I, yeah i saw some river otters down the river or whatever so he he saw that i had some knowledge that was going to be beneficial to his production uh, and then that just morphed into, you know, I was helping him do that. And then, you know, soon enough, you could see that I could carry his 60 pound backpack to the top of the mountain <laughs> and all his gear and find the grizzly bears for him. And so he started giving me, you know, paying me a little money. So I kept coming around. And, uh, so I did that through that summer. I went back to school. Um, and then even while I was in school that, uh, the next semester, he was, you know, constantly teasing me with, you know, Hey, I'm back in the park. I'm filming this or that. And so I would, you know, and you're like, I got to study. Yeah. So I was playing hooky and, you know, running around doing that. Well, cut to, uh, like a year later, um, that series got a big uptick and he had a, he had to deliver 52 half hour episodes. Um, 52. Yeah. And wow. In what space and, of time? And he had a, in production time it was going to be two years of time. Um, Still. Yeah. So, yeah, still. Yeah. And so, but it was, it was worldwide. So then he just came to me and said, Hey, uh, I'd love you to be part of the series. We're going to, you know, going to be going to Africa and India, going to, you know, South America. And, you know, he's like, you know, are you in? And 
I remember thinking to myself, well, I should probably think about it. Yes, no, I'm gone. <laughs> you know, how do you say no? Like you just can't. I couldn't. Yeah. So, and honestly, man, no. the bottom line is, is that, you know, I thought I can always go back to school. I can go do this. Yeah. And I never, I never came back. Um, you know, I, on that series alone, I mean, I think I, <clears throat> I went from, you know, doing everything I said, being a Sherpa and of uh, tracker to, you know, he would have to go back to the, to LA and I was going to be on location for another week. So, you know, he taught me how to use the camera. Um, so I would sit, sit back and shoot. Um, so then, you know, that morphs into, you know, you start doing a lot more camera work and then, you know, because I had a basic knowledge of the animals, I started helping writing and, uh, then that, yeah, then the next the few projects that came down after the safari, you know, I was helping to produce and, um, come up with some of the concepts and then being, you know, boots on the ground plus camera work. So, but I was always behind the camera, um, for years, um, and, you know, and made fun of all the people in front of the camera mostly. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so that's what I did for until I was about 20, 26, 27. So, I mean, I was almost 10 years early because I started doing that when I was 18. Um, wow. So you got the break and you just didn't stop. Never stopped. Yeah. And it was, uh, and that, that, what a turning point that, I mean, wow. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know how it is, man. It's like you get these, it was you feast or famine, right? You know, when production was yeah. good, I was traveling, having fun, and then come back home and didn't have a shoot for months. And I was like, you know, like a basic starving college kid at that point, really, but without, without being in college. And so, you know, I'd, sometimes I'd move back home or um, find a little odd job here and there. Um, and, and then one of the, some of the odd jobs I started finding that actually did start to morph who I am is I started working at wildlife parks. Um, and you know, in Montana, yeah, in Montana. and you know, so a lot of the work was just feeding animals, shoveling poop, you know, doing stuff like that. But, um, it, it still was in the wildlife realm and, and I made it, you know, it was an interesting connection because, um, you know, back in those days, I look back in those days and I think they seem like the wild west because some of the things that we used to do, but, um, you know, again, I was, I was even then probably not a big fan of animals in captivity, but you know, what I was learning, especially like tracking and stuff like that, like, you know, I would go and clean it, let's give it, give it a kind of an example here. Like I'd clean a, a lynx cage, for example, a Canadian lynx cage. And when I'm in there shoveling this poop and feeding it every day. Uh, and then I'd go out in the field and I'd be walking around and I'd smell the smell that I smelled every day when I was cleaning that lynx. And I would say, Hey, there's a lynx around here. And then sure enough, as I walked around and investigated more, I'd find a lynx track. And I was like, I would just, I started building like a, you know, an olfactory catalog of animals because I was dealing with. And so it was, it was starting to translate and then even in behavior. So like the couple of the places I worked were, you know, the, the animals were, uh, used for photography and stuff like that. So I would, you know, you, you have hands on, you know, and you take the animals out. So you, you start to learn how these animals move. And then when I would go work on the productions, um, a lot of that stuff would translate and actually be advantageous to anticipating animal behavior, especially when you're doing camera work. Um, so it just, yeah, it was just a really weird kind of back and forth. The thing I was doing is I was doing still wildlife filmmaking and and working at these wildlife parks. Um, yeah. And it, it, yeah. And I look back on that. I mean, that was my early twenties. Um, it, it really did set a foundation to, you know, who I am now. And I learned, you know, I don't, there were some things back then I would say I'm not proud of. Um, certainly I was part of some organizations and companies that are, were terrible in retrospect. Um, in, in terms of, you know, just ex for wildlife, yeah, just exploitation, mean? uh, of wildlife. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of these animals lived in, you know, inadequate cages and i mean we you know, i was just telling my wife the other day we did we did some crazy shit i mean i would i would take i'm just give you an example i mean it's gonna get in trouble for it now um but we would have, <laughs> have a mountain lion in the back of a truck in a kind of a makeshift cage and you know a lot of times we would just drive these cats around and you know put animals in the back of the truck so they got used to be in the back of the truck because we we're going to go from we we're going to go from the location or to the facility, to a location. We just wanted them to be used to being in the back of the vehicle. So we decided one day that we were going to go take a mountain lion for a ride down to where we we're going to have lunch at this local little tavern at a small town in Montana. Well, on the way there, it's just this backcountry road, probably 20 miles long. And I remember it was a wintertime and there was this herd of mule deer on the side of the road. 
And the cat started perking up to it. And we got this great idea that we're just going to let this cat out and see what he's going to do. <laughs> and we did. And, you know, and this, cat, this cat's like, you know, this big kind of, you know, fat captive cat that went after him and could have, never had a chance to catch him. But it, he had such fun trying, you know, it was like a toy to him, you know. And we used to do stuff like yeah. that all the time because it was just kind of fun for the cats, fun for us to watch. Um, but, you know, I mean, obviously terribly illegal. Um, you know, there's yeah. lots of bad things about it. But, you know, as a kid in his 20, early 20s, we didn't care. Um, and there was yeah. no one around. We all do stupid shit yeah. in our 20s. <laughs> and there, I mean, I, man, there were so many things like that. That was back in the old, it was in the old days, man. It was just like, you know, we would, they would, we just do all kinds of things like that. You know, animals so, would get loose. We're, so, you know, looking for them all the time, tracking them down, trying to catch them. It was just, it was nuts. <laughs> So where did a lot of these, so I'm assuming that these, like the mountain lion that was being used in, in some form of film production, but how did they end up getting to the parks in the first place? Or is it a long catalog of um, orphan because of road, uh, road accident and things like yeah, that? Yeah, a lot of them were just products of the kind of captive breeding um, game. But also, yeah, like the okay. one mountain lion I just was explaining, he, this cat was actually an orphan from Arizona. His mother was shot and killed. And then we actually got him and his sister. And I actually raised him uh, since he was a really tiny little spotted guy. So at that point, you know, he was like a one or two year old little cat. Um, had a great relationship with that that mountain lion. And inevitably, he actually ended up attacking me. And I've got some pretty good scars on my body from it. But uh, oh, wow. yeah. Yeah. How did that come about? I mean, that <laughs> seems like... I, I, know, I've, I, I know numerous stories of people who have, you know, worked with um, orphan big game particularly predators in different parts of the world where that happens eventually if you do enough of it. It happens all the time. Yeah, no, I mean, this mm. cat this cat was 140 pounds of muscle. He was a pretty athletic cat, and I would take him on walks. Again, looking back on it, something I would never do to, today, um, but I would take him to just forest service land here, public land, in the back of that truck. I'd put him on a leash, and I'd walk him down the trail, and then we'd get far enough away where I knew there would be no kids dogs or people and i would just cut him off the leash and he would just run around the forest and i would just stay with him and he vice versa right and so we were doing something similar and i'd play a little bit of cat and mouse with him where i you know again kind of asking for it in retrospect but you know i would hide and he'd chase after me and then he would run and hide and i would go after him and uh then one day he just decided that um he was you know didn't like what i was doing evidently he, I mean, so he just came over to me and he was just his eyes were kind of dilated and his ears were kind of flattened. And I immediately knew he had some weird thing in his mind going on. I looked at him and said, no. And he jumped at me and tried to bite me in the throat. And I grabbed onto his throat to keep his mouth away from my neck. And he was fully clawed. So he dug his claws in and into me. Um, and was just, he was winning the, the match. He was pulling his own self. I'm not, I'm not surprised. Yeah. <laughs> and then, so mountain lions and a lot of big cats, they do this next thing. If they're, if they can't bite you, he started to try to pull his back feet up and try to rake gut me. Yeah. Like get your yeah. guts. And so that's what he started doing. But yeah. then, you know, front paws in my shoulders, back paws coming up to rake. So he kind of lost leverage off the ground. And so he kind of twisted and fell to the ground. As soon as he hit the ground. He stopped. In fact, and then he stopped and then started purring. And uh, huh. I put the call, uh, the leash on him and just walked him back like a quarter mile back to the truck and loaded him up and looked down at my body and I just was leaking. Uh, Jeez. Yeah, and I had to you know <laughs> go to the hospital and I remember walking in and they asked me what went wrong and I said uh, <laughs> <laughs> I took my mountain lion. Yeah, for a exactly. Walk. And they they thought I was nuts. Like I I honestly think that they thought I was a crazy person. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean that, that again. That's that's a lot of the some of the foundational years of Casey Anderson that a lot of people don't know about. Um, I mean, I've I've wrote a book about you know, and I've definitely touched on all this stuff because it as much as my time in the wild as a filmmaker, especially in those early years, this other part of my the I would call it the dark side of uh, some of my first years. Um, it, it it was as impressionable and and um, it's probably important as anything uh, as who I am today. Mm -hmm. So when did that kind of switch happen where you started to really question uh, or have these big questions about wildlife and captivity and 
your role in facilitating some of that to the point where now you have your own sanctuary? Yeah, it happened pretty distinctly. So I, fr- I moved on to you know continue doing a lot of filmmaking all over the world, and that again majority of what I was doing. And then I got this job, kind of as a was title was a curator, but I yeah just making sure the animals were all healthy, and I was kind of the kind of the animal boss um, at this wildlife park in Idaho, um, and it was mostly bears, black bears, and grizzly bears, and. Yeah, I just started, as the older I got, I started to, I guess, care about the business part of it all and kind of, you know, it was part of the uh, the meetings that were decisions were being made. And I could see that this just wasn't, just didn't jive with what I believed in. Um, I mean, I love the wild. That's what I grew up loving. And uh, I see these animals and I just see that they're not happy or not taken care of. But even worse, I mean, just the exploitation and the, and the decisions on for these animals lives mostly made by how much money they could make somebody. Uh, yeah. and yeah, it came down to, you know, I was like 25 years old and, um, this little bear cub was born at this facility. Actually three, three little bear cubs were born at this facility and this facility was full population was full. They didn't have no room for more bears. So that was their decision that they just needed to get rid of them. And if they couldn't find a place for them, they were going to euthanize them. And I just thought, this is ridiculous. I mean, they're allowing these bears to mate and these cubs are being born, <laughs> but you know, these little cubs, they wanted to keep the cubs around for that cute period um, where they would be an attractant, an attractive thing for the, for guests. But you know, no one wants to see that awkward next stage bear. They want to see either little kind of cute cubs or the big, big, massive bears. So their their policy was let's continue mating these bears and having these cubs keep the cubs around and then get rid of the cubs and then start over again. And I I didn't want to be part of it. Um, so it's so sad. It's and it's so much like that goes on way more than people. It goes on so way it's more. so so much. It's shady. It's shady out there, man. I tell you for sure. Ninety nine percent shady. Um, so yeah, yeah. and uh, so I found homes for two of the cubs and. And one of the cubs, you know, again, I'd bottle raising these little guys and bonding with them. Um, yeah. And I uh, couldn't find, you know, I decided that, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take this cub <laughs> and I'm going to start a sanctuary and I'm going to try to do something right with, you know, I know these, there's all these situations where there's these bears like this that have no place to go, um, both from being orphaned in the wild or orphaned from strange situations like this. And uh, that, yeah, 20, 26, I guess, years old, I had this grand idea i was going to take this little bear cub raise it it's bold yeah and build a <laughs> sanctuary in montana that rescues bears and and i think and and in retrospect you know or yeah in retrospect to me the the idea was exactly that and you know being i spent a lot of time in the wild and a lot of time around grizzly bears and a lot of time around people around grizzly bears is that i knew that there was a need for education and i thought you know let's mm-hmm. let's build a sanctuary in a place that People can stop by and see these cool bears, but most importantly, we can educate them about living and being around grizzly bears. And uh, so that's what we did. And yeah, I, I look back and I see like like today, I see like twenty six year old kids walking around. I think what I w-? at the time I thought I was pretty smart, and you know, <laughs> <laughs> we all <Yeah>. do. <laughs> but uh, it it worked out. I mean that it uh, it, it became something bigger than I ever thought. Yeah, what, uh, Brutus was the name of that bear. Yeah, right? little Brutus. Um, yeah, so I guess it's been twenty years ago now, or a little more, twenty-one. Um, yeah, you know, so res- rescuing him. You know, when I first saw him, he was about the size of a, a beer can, um, <laughs> and bottle raised him. And then, you know, by the time we were taking him to the next next stage of his life, the sanctuary, he was you know hundred pounds and. Um, built this facility for him. Uh, in fact, the, the producer that I had been working with of all those years financed the place. He believed in the idea. Oh, amazing. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And so he built the facility and then rescued two other bears shortly after that were 18 years old that had been a product of the circus industry and lived in these little tiny, tiny cages for their entire lives of 18 years. Um, one of them just died about a month ago, which is crazy. That bear lived to be 36 years old. Um, 36 and, um, wow. yeah, well, 30, yeah, 38 years old. Um, so crazy. I mean, so, you know, at that point when we rescue these 18 year old bears that live in these little six by six cages, 
we thought maybe they'd get a couple good years of running around a sanctuary and digging in the grass and swimming and stuff. But um, no, she got more than half her life to do that, which is, yeah, again, and it's just to see that it, incredible. that bear, how elated those bears were to be able to be bears um, and happy they were. And even the captives, you know, a captive upgrade, I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it. Um, yeah. And I think that that was one of those things. Bears in captivity of all the species I've ever worked with. It tend to be pretty easy to take care of because they, you know, they care about one thing mostly, and that's food. And it's uh, if you if they've got everything that they want in that sense, you know, often even the wild bears are wandering around because they're just looking for food. You know, you can see that this is a perfect example is the salmon rivers in Alaska. It's like, you know, the salmon's are yeah. in their their range, their home range turns to about a hundred square feet. <laughs> um, yeah. and, I, and I think, you know, again, but it's, there's still something that they're missing and, uh, I'm rambling here, but yeah. And so Brutus was the first and raising him and spending time with him and building this incredible bond with him. And I think that one of the most important things from that relationship was that, you know, I'm seeing, I was seeing things in an animal that you, when we hear about them, they're mostly because they've done something wrong. They've hurt somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, this highly intelligent, emotional animal um that i made a connection with and i just it it really started opening my eyes up as a a growing filmmaker even it's like you know here's there's so many more characteristics here to these animals that i think that we need to try to tell the stories of so was the sanctuary that you have set up was that for bears that couldn't go back into the wild or have you also um taken on bears that the intention is that they would be um, released back and reintegrated into wild populations. Yeah, all the bears that we have taken in at the sanctuary have all been bears that can't go back into the wild. They're usually orphaned too young, so they don't get to learn those mm-hmm. those uh, skills that they need to learn from their mother in those first three years that they're with them. Um, so every yeah, all the bears that we found or, or we've rescued have been young bears that can't go back. And then honestly, the legal situation here in the states, particularly. Even if you did try to rehab a bear and got to the point where it, you know, you maybe taught it some skills or it, it was to the point where it could go back out. Liability wise, most fish wildlife parks or, you know, agent, US fish wildlife agencies would not allow it anyway. So it's a dead end street. Mm-hmm. I and mean, once yeah. a bear is orphaned in the wild, it has two choices. And that is to try to beat the odds and survive without its mother and without learning any of those skills or be euthanized or put in captivity really um and uh yeah, that's kind of what the, you know, the original film we were talking about at the top of the podcast yeah, yeah it's really kind of explored that because you know over the years since the sanctuary existed you know a lot of those situations will come to me where there's this little bear in the woods without a mother and everybody calls up casey anderson and says hey can you do something with this bear like you did with brutus and i look at that situation yeah. i'm like you know uh you know give that guy a chance and over the years I've seen little bears that were orphaned way too early overcome the odds. And I've seen them in their second year and I've seen them in their third year and I've seen them become adult bears. And yeah. And they have a wild. In the wild. Yeah. And it's like nature took its course and created this, this animal who's probably super resilient and tough and smart. And that's why it's there. Um, And I became, you know, as time has gone on, I've, I honestly hope my sanctuary goes extinct and that we always are making the right choices for animals and they, and, or, you know, and letting them, let nature take its course, but giving them a place in nature where they have the best chance possible. And I think that's the kind of the, where I'm at now for sure. What is the, we just, we ran a, in Modern Huntsman, we ran a story uh, that Rob Green wrote um, two volumes ago called The Hand That Feeds. And it was all about grizzly bear and the, grizzly bear human interface interaction and where and how conflicts arise and if i was to this doesn't do justice to his incredibly um, well articulated article but the the major takeaway from that is that we need to be better educated in living in landscapes that grizzly bears also exist in that was the takeaway from the story um how are you seeing that change over the period of time that you've been where you are in Montana, because you're 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 right at the 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 cusp of it in the yellow, the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And my the first grizzly that I ever saw was uh, up in uh, Tom Minor Basin two 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 or three years ago. 
Um, but you, you, you have it right on your doorstep there, obviously. Literally sometimes. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, 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 it waxes and wanes. Uh, it's a funny thing. I think that that's, I think that sentiment is right. I think that in order for humans and grizzly bears to coexist, it's going to take a lot of education, um, for humans to really understand who these, who these animals are and how to live with them. And why they're making decisions that they're making and what we can do to help them make better decisions, I guess, at some level. Um, and you know, through filmmaking, honestly, I mean, a lot of films have come out and I think that um, people are learning things about bears and, you know, oh, I didn't know I had to put, I should put my bird feeder away in the autumn months. Now I do, you know, and, they, and I want to help the bears out. So they do. So I think there's, there's a lot of films out there that are teaching these things. And I know we've done a bunch of them over the years. Um, and as Brutus, as an ambassador to that, and it has educated the people and they are making the right decisions. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of outreach, um, things going on through NGOs and other, other organizations that are really trying to reach out to kids and stuff on, on a basic level here to, and what it is like to live with bears and what we should and shouldn't do. And I think inevitably it's about fear um and it, as it is with many animals you know the white sharks or lions or anything um you know why would you care or you know want to take care of an animal that you're afraid of and uh, and being not understanding something often is it's simply easy to fear something if you don't understand it yeah so i think that it's just trying to help people understand particularly the grizzly bear and especially in this area you know and i see you know where the people come around and there's these big movements to, you know, put in a whole bunch of bear proof trash containers and things like that to help the bears not make bad choices. But then, you know, then, you know, one bear attacks somebody because they've, you know, accidentally came around the corner, got too close. And then you see the community kind of go back into that fear mode again. And then, you know, it's up to us to kind of try to help them understand, you know, why that bear did what it did and then kind of regain their confidence back so that they're not making choices out of fear. Um, and it just kind of kind of goes back and forth uh, a little bit. Yeah, and, and I suppose the same to some extent applies to to wolves as well. And then there's the the interaction that is not just uh, sort of Joe Public, but agricultural interest. I know that there's a big um, or can be a big conflict there as well. Have you had much to do with sort of trying to mitigate some of those issues? God, constantly. That's really who I, my life is. My life has evolved into that most, more than anything lately. Um, yeah, you know, especially having little kids here now, um, growing up, I'm a little more at home, a little bit more, and, and more interest in diving deeper into the community issues at large. And, and again, I live in one of the coolest places on the planet, the edge of Yellowstone here. So I'm, the wolves, the bears, or mount lions are all, they are all issues that the community is talking about all the time. Um, and, you know, I grew up in Montana and my, you know, half my family are cattle ranchers. So I've grew up listening and hearing their perspective and, and understanding the perspective. Um, but also I listen and hear the other side is equally as much. So I do find myself um, often trying to uh, take the, be a bit of a mediator. Um, yeah, you know, there's some extremists on both sides that I think that don't, are not helping anybody and certainly not the, not the wildlife. It never does. never does. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I do, I empathize with both sides and I try to bring them to the table and, um, I, and it's something I've been doing a lot of. Um, and again, even if I watch my, my meter, <laughs> I go back and forth a little bit. I mean, I'm not very little, right. I, you know, you know, but it's, I, will kind of say, yeah, you know, the ranchers, they are stewards of these wide open landscapes that harbor so many different other wildlife. And what's the alternative to these ranchers going, these ranches going under development and housing? That's, and that's, yeah. that's, yeah, yeah, particularly around Bozeman, right? Yeah. Now. And it's crazy. So it's like, I want to figure out ways that, you know, how can these ranches become sustainable? Um, but also their mindset isn't, I hate every predator. And, I, but you see that, you know, particularly, you know, you mentioned Tom Minor Basin, really good friends of mine up there, um, the Anderson family. I mean, they're, yeah, I know. Yeah. I mean, they've been around 
forever. And they, you know, and they, their mindset has changed. I call them the, they're the Renaissance ranchers as I, I like to call them. And, <laughs> and they, and their ways are, of living with predators is working. And I think that when their peers, the other ranchers in the area see that, especially these new generations that are taking over the ranches from their kind of old school, narrow mindset people that they might've, yeah. um, they're, they're trying some of these things. And so I think that now we just, as a community have to celebrate that, uh, and support it. And because inevitably we want them to be, these ranches to be around and we, and how wonderful it would be if we can have these big wild, wide open places that are sustainable and they love predators too. And yeah, I think that, that, we got to find out what that compromise is that makes it work. And that might be, you know, again, I'm like, I'm not anti-hunting predator because of that. I mean, I, I think that if there's a management um, tool that mm -hmm. the community as a whole can sign up for, and it's based in science um, and not pat, you know, crazy fanatic passion, <laughs> Then yep. we can find it. Yep. We can find that, you know, and if, you know, some people, if the ranchers feel like, you know, we're going to kill five wolves, that's the quote I'm currently north of the Yellowstone Park instead of 25 as they did last year. And they're okay yeah. with that. Um, and then the other side, the wolf people are like, okay, yeah, we can still have our livelihood too. And it's not going to impact the wolves too much either. Then it's a win-win. Right. And I think that we can't, mm -hmm. we haven't found that balance yet. We're trying. No. And I think that, uh, but I, yeah, I'm, Long, short answer to what you asked. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm heavily involved in all those uh, situations, and I'm certainly reaching across the fence, so to speak, and uh, trying mm -hmm. to bring people together and find a common ground. It's tough, man. It might be one of the toughest things I've ever it, done. It is tough because you know the the, the kind of pragmatic um, approach and opinion that you just expressed there from somebody whose entire life has been deeply rooted in in caring and understanding um, wildlife is it, it, not very common. It does tend to be either position, either protect everything or let's kill everything that's threatening, threatening my livelihood. And there's very, there's an increasing amount of it. And, but maybe, but it's probably slightly distorted by those are the kind of people that I hang around and have conversations with. So I'm not sure if that's actually moving in that direction um, or it's just the world that I move in. Um, but it is frustrating that more people and organizations can't come to the table. And be okay with um, them not getting 100% of everything that they want. And instead, and this goes back to like what we were mentioning right at the start, looking at the bigger picture of the species as a whole and conservation landscape scale, leaning where we can on the science that we have and trying to make best decisions around that, but also understand that people live in the landscape and we want to live. I think all society wants to live in a landscape that also has nature around it and in it, because I think we, we've, we're we learning more and certainly understanding. I mean, I think people live in the countryside have understood this for a long time, but certainly it's being more publicized and people in urban areas are understanding more that we gain so much more as humans and it's healthier for us to be in environments that are, that are integrated in nature. But that is difficult. Definitely. Uh, it's it's a tough one. It's um, I, I'm hopeful. <laughs> uh, otherwise, I wouldn't, you know, I guess that, but at the same time, there's times that I've you know, certainly put my head in my hands and think, you know, will my kids have wolves and bears and mountain lions like I got to as I grew up in Montana? And I, and yeah, that, I, uh, it's, it's a, you got to keep going. You got to keep trying, I think. And um, yeah, I'm hopeful. I mean, I've been interacting with a lot of younger generations, um, particularly in, in the ranching community, and they're open minded and they're listening. You're seeing a shift. I see it. I see like a shift. The old guard. Yeah, I see, there's a shift, and even in the old guard, I think you know you can, you can teach old dogs new tricks, <laughs> and I think that uh, you know that's there's some value in you know you know if I walk up to a rancher and say I'm a fifth generation Montanan, that means something to them. Um, yep. And you know I grew up hunting, and I've been my like I said, my family are cattle ranchers, so now at least I I'm coming from a a position that I actually understand a lot of what they 
part of their lives. And, but I have some other perspectives and if I can, you know, say, Hey, I'm on your team, but here, listen to this stuff. And this, you know, this is what, this is what the other side's doing. This is what they're saying. And here's the facts, right? Um, it, I've seen people change a little bit, you know, I, I certainly, especially with grizzly bears, you know, be back to, you know, I've had people come up to me and say, I've watched your show and learned a lot more about grizzly bears. And, you know, now that I know the, the intelligent, amazing animals they are, I, I give them a chance on my, on my ranch. Um, mm-hmm. That's yeah. Great. So it's great to hear those kind of like very tangible shifts. Well, I, I, I have to say that Montana uh, and where you are is, is a place that is uh, very deeply seated in my heart. And I, I didn't get back this year and I was feeling the withdrawal of not being on the edge of uh, Yellowstone and, and around in that area because it truly is a, it's a beautiful place and so fortunate to have big predators around you and, and a landscape that is complicated, uh, but has achieved so much in the last few decades. It really has. Yeah, it's uh, it, having traveled the world and seen a lot of other amazing places. You know, I, you do be cute. You take home for granted sometimes, but you know, when I come back home, yeah, I just easily. <laughs> I think to myself, you know, this is one of the wonder, most wonderful places on the planet, if not the most wonderful place on the planet. Um, and uh, yeah, and I get to call it home, and I get to raise my family here, and uh, yeah, lucky. It's a, uh, but you know, it doesn't come without hard work, I think, and from a lot of people and, and in order for it to stick around, it's going to just continue that continued hard work is going to have to happen. For sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, you brought this up 10, 15 minutes ago, the thing that does, and it not, not just, I mean, I, I've seen it in the last five years around, around Bozeman and Montana at a, at a crazy rate, but is true in many parts of the world is that the the shift in land use through development is happening seem seemingly more rapidly and and is a greater threat to wildlife than the tussle of interactions between farmers and predators i would say 100% uh, absolutely and i think that that's one of the things that i've been trying you know again when you you're talking to all these people all the stakeholders so to speak uh you know, it isn't about that. It's, it's, it's not about ranchers versus predators. That's, that's, that's minuscule, you know, minute in the, the scheme yeah. of things. What we all want, we don't, what we all don't want is these big landscapes to go away. And here's a little anecdotal thing. I wrote this down the other day because I thought it was so powerful. Um, my little, I have a little girl, four year old who loves the outdoors. Um, and she's, you know, I can't keep her out of it enough. And, Reminds me of probably a small four-year-old me. Um, and we climb up to the top of this mountain just out my back door that overlooks Paradise Valley. Um, and we we do it all the time. And in the last four years, we go up to this old Native American cairn. It's kind of our it's our church up there. It's where we like to go. And it's got this incredible view. And that the last four years, I have certainly have noticed the valley, valley change from that perspective up there. And so the other day, we went up kind of late in the evening. And we were up there, the lights, you know, lights were started coming on down the valley below. And my little girl just looks at me and goes, wow, look at all the fireflies. And I just thought to myself, wow. yeah, I, you know, I, I, I didn't want to, I didn't have the heart. It's so sad. I know, I know, it's so sad. <laughs> it's breaking my heart. And I just thought to myself, I just, I didn't have the heart to tell her they were not fireflies. But, you know, I, in that moment, there was an obvious increase of quote unquote fireflies that we had, you know hadn't been seen just a year before mm-hmm. and um yeah it's paradise valley's changing and it's i love paradise valley it's beautiful though yeah but it's just uh you know and it is in the end it's these small family ranches just can't sustain themselves anymore and they you know when a developer comes in and goes hey i'll give you enough money that your kids and your grandkids will be fine for the rest of their lives um of course you're gonna say yeah. yes of course you yeah. are. Yeah. So what projects do you have on the go now that you can tell me about that, that you're working on? That I can tell you about? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure, like most people who do this kind of work and working in film and stuff, there's there's normally a, a host of the, that I normally get to hear about after we stop recording. Yeah, I can tell you about you one. You can tell the world about. I can tell you about one that I'm really digging lately. I mean, yeah, we kind of have we've been talking about local politics and captive animals more than anything, and that's. <laughs> but yeah, I'm still a filmmaker. Yeah, and one that I'm doing right now that I really have have, have enjoyed, um, is a series called the tracker's diary. Um, and basically it's, it's for, it's like the most simplistic film kind of old school. <laughs> uh, it's, it's basically a kind of a, a journal, um, type film of me going out in the woods. And it's just literally like, it's a little bit of like a making of or behind the scenes kind of feel to it. But also we have, you know, our, we are bringing our, big cameras and capturing really cool behavior but yeah we just been going to cool locations and um kind of embedding small teams getting some really great behavior but we also kind of turn our camera back on ourselves a bit and just like um just to see what it takes to do a lot of these things yeah i like that because i think a lot of people don't they, we've started to appreciate it or the public have started to appreciate it more in the last few years when they've started to release like behind the scenes of our planet and that that one sort of one hour special but prior to that you often didn't see or hear at all from the the filmmakers who are spending months or sometimes years in the field to capture these unique behaviors yeah no and i, th I think it's a bit of essence of that you know I, that's my my you know, my foundation and my passion, I love going out and just tracking and finding animals. And then, you know, obviously witnessing cool behavior that's never been filmed before. Um, or even has, but just a different perspective. And, you know, so we did a series, big first part of that series was up in Katmai, uh, where we spent a ton of time with just with bears and had incredible interactions and witnessed amazing things and, uh, lived with the bears for almost a month. Um, Wow. Yeah, and that's going to move. You know, we're going to do things from the Grand Canyon to the Everglades. We're going to be going across doing the Okavango Delta, going into Nepal. Oh, right. So it's going to be global. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. So is it start? Have you started to release it yet? Yeah. Or is so this an ongoing. The first round, the Katmai. So, yeah, Tracker's Diary Katmai is out. It's on Curiosity Stream. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of stuff seems to be on that now, but I, I, I hadn't heard of it until about six months ago. Yeah, it's great. I mean, Curiosity Stream is great because it's just like, I've got like 23 million subscribers worldwide. It's very, you know, it's all science history or natural history kind of animal behavior based stuff. Um, so yeah, so Netflix, natural history, Netflix. Um, okay. Yeah. It's got some real, it's just, I hate to use the term, but it's true. Smart TV. It's just very smart TV. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of it's, you know, like we, ours are only 25 minute little episodes, but it's just, you know, that's most people only have that much time anyway to watch TV anymore. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's been, that, that's been a really fun, like I would call it a, I hate to call it a side project because we love it as much as any of the big projects. And we're of course doing, still doing some blue chip stuff, um, you know, big long term stuff. Um, in fact, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I could probably give you a, a slight nod at one of your past guests, but I'm working on collaboration with Ben Masters on some stuff oh are yeah. you fantastic. And yeah fantastic it's some real big blue chip exciting never shot before behavior stuff uh in the mountain lion world which is my like i said nice. yeah so we're uh yeah that's yeah exciting. you certainly got you certainly got into some heated debate about mountain lions recently <laughs> he came on the podcast and talked about it a little bit yeah no yeah no he loves you know, he's a big cat guy he loves cats and uh absolutely and we sh share a lot of passions and we have you know we have some resources each of us have, you know, things that we can bring to the table that, you know, one plus one equals three kind of a scenario. So we're, we're doing some cool stuff here in the. All right, Jermaine. Well, that is exciting because, um, yeah, I mean, he's a, an incredible person and, uh, the stuff that they've um, deep in the heart. And I was actually just with Austin Alvarado, one of his cinematographers, uh, for a bunch of time in, uh, Big Bend, cause we've just made a, well, it's in, it's on the cutting floor right now. We made a short documentary about him um and black bears so uh that's really exciting fantastic yeah no so and there's all there's all kinds of other stuff brewing and we'll see but uh it's been vision talks you know starting the production company i guess would it be now eight years ago seven years ago um yeah never thought i would do it did it and uh yeah we're still around i think when you're when you're talking about wildlife production companies particularly if you're still around you're doing something
<laughs> yeah, no, for, for sure, for sure. Otherwise, it does. It just doesn't. It, it doesn't last. There's a lot of people would love to do it, but making it actually work is incredibly difficult. Um, if people want to follow what you're up to, Casey, is there where where should people do that? I, I noticed that you you have a pod, is is your podcast quite regular? I think you had seven or eight episodes on that as it stands right now. Yeah, so my podcast it took a bit of a hiatus, but we're kicking it back up. Um, currently, it's called Sidetracked with Casey Anderson. It may, uh, yeah, you can find it at Sidetracked with Casey Anderson. Um, it may change his title, but it'll still be in that same location. Um, yeah, so that's a good place to keep up. And then, yeah, all the social media stuff. So Instagram's at Grizzly Guy. I try to keep that populated as much as possible. I have a super, my Facebook page, um, that's super interactive. Um, I think it's called, at, it's at Grizz Guy, my Facebook page. Um, but you should be able to find it just by searching Casey Anderson. But uh, yeah, we keep everybody up to date as much as we can on the social media stuff. And then, of course, go to the, there's a couple of websites, visionhawkfilms.com and caseyanderson.tv. And either of those will, we're always posting new videos and stuff and keeping everybody up to date on what we're up to. Casey, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. Um, I'm, uh, I, I will try and make a point of letting you know way ahead of time when I'm going to be over in Montana <laughs> next time so that we can uh, have a beer together and, and talk more because uh, it would be, I, I think we, we by the sounds of it, we probably have quite a few mutual friends as well. So that would be great. Yeah, no, please do. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be on the podcast and we, uh, when you're in Montana, let's hang out. Let's go, uh, let's go tracking some bears and hang out. And we, I'm sure we got hours of stuff we could talk about. I, I don't. I don't need to be asked twice. I haven't spent a lot of time with bears at all. Um, pick any species on the continent of Africa. A lot of time there, but bears is just something I'm fascinated by, but don't know a hell of a lot about. And so I, I, I will. I will invite myself to that invite at some point in the future for sure to spend some time in the field with you. Well, I look forward to it. Let's make it happen. Cheers, Casey. 